You are listening to Courtney's story, a daughter born at 25 weeks on the Child Life On Call podcast. overwhelming feeling of love and happiness and sadness. I was scared out of my mind. I mean, she was only a pound and four ounces, 12 inches long. I mean, she was small. That was Courtney Hughes, and we will be listening to her talk about her experience with preeclampsia and giving birth to her daughter at just 25 weeks. She will talk about their NICU experience and what life has been like now that her precious daughter is growing up. Talking with Courtney was a complete pleasure, and she opens up in such a real and vulnerable way like she hasn't ever before. Courtney, I can't thank you enough for trusting me and using this podcast as a platform to tell your story in the hopes that you may be helping someone else who is struggling with a similar experience. Courtney is a beautiful and vibrant person who has an impressive and demanding job as the Senior Advisor of Corporate Communications at Dell. She is a single mama to her equally beautiful and vibrant daughter, Mackenzie. She grew up in West Virginia and is the daughter to her dad, a coal miner, and her mom, a minister. Her parents have been married for almost 40 years. At around 16 weeks pregnant, Courtney learned that Mackenzie was measuring small. Although not incredibly concerning, they asked Courtney to stop exercising. Appointments had been normal after that until she was seen at 25 weeks. The nurse checked my blood pressure, and I could tell by the look on her face that something was wrong. And I asked her, like, is everything okay? And she was like, yeah, everything's fine. Just lay on your side. I'll be back in about 10 minutes. And so I was like, this never happens, like, during my appointments. I'm usually in and out. And then she comes back. And she takes it again, and she was like, just continue laying on your side, and I'll be back. And this time she brought the doctor in, and they took it, my blood pressure the third time, and then she told me that they were going to have to admit me into labor and delivery because my blood pressure was really high. And at that point, I start freaking out. I, I like, I'm bawling my eyes out um I'm sorry the nurse rolls me from the doctor's office into the hospital part <clears throat> and the first thing I did was I asked her to pray with me because I couldn't get any words out and and they put me in labor and delivery room and hooked me up to all these machines to monitor her, monitor myself. Um, started pumping me full of blood pressure medicine and magnesium to keep me from having a seizure. But they never let me see what my blood pressure was. And they, um, the doctor came in and gave me a steroid shot and told me what it was for, that it was for um, the baby's lungs to help her 
And I just keep asking, like, please don't make me have my baby right now. Like, she won't make it. Like, I can't live with losing my child. She was like, I can't promise you that. After an incredibly emotional and scary time, Courtney learned that she was unable to stay at that hospital because their NICU was not well equipped for a preemie that young. Courtney was then transported to Medical City, Dallas. I'm like riding in this bumpy ambulance and my blood pressure is sky high. That, and I, of course, I don't know, like, because I was asymptomatic. I didn't have any symptoms. There was no headache. There was no chest pain. There was no short of breath. I felt fine. I couldn't understand why they were keeping me. And um, I get there and I'm in labor and delivery room and... The first night, um, I'd actually ask my best friend, like, hey, can you come and get my car keys and move my car and take it to my apartment because it's at the other hospital? And can you walk my dog? Like, I'm laying in bed going through all this stuff. Can you walk my dog and make sure he's eight and keep my keys in case you have to go back? And can you bring my work computer? (laughs) Like, of all things. And um, all of my friends call me Sunny. That was um, my name in the entertainment world. I did radio for four years. And so they've always called me Sunny. And so he comes to the hospital and lets me know that all that's done. He brings me my work computer. And by that time, um, a NICU doctor comes in um, who happened to be one of my favorites. His name was Dr. Swindeman. He was um, he was a straight shooter, and I liked that about him. I didn't need anybody to sugarcoat anything for me or to make my situation easier to digest. Like, it's hard enough. Like, I, I really need the truth. I don't care if it's ugly. Like, can you tell me? Because, of course, he started his usual courtesy stuff and I was like look I don't I don't need that I need you to tell me what's going on with me what's going on with my kid what are her chances like I I need to know everything and he was like you want to know and I was like yes and he asked if I had seen my blood pressure and I was like no and we are talking like (laughs) 240s 250s over like 120 like it was out, like looking at those numbers terrified me because I know I am in stroke and heart attack range and I feel fine, which brought about another uncomfortable reality of what if it happened when I was home by myself because I was um, in the pregnancy by myself. He let me know that and um, let me know that with the test. I had um, severe preeclampsia. It's in like stages of like one, two, and three. I was three. Uh, Most women develop it in their third trimester closer to their delivery time. I developed it early. Um, Nothing I did, you know, to to bring that on. And um, then asked... Um, had I received the steroid shot and I was like well I got one before I got here and he's like well if you're still pregnant tomorrow we'll give you another one and I was like okay and 
then he let me know, you know, that her chances were like 20 to 30% of making it. Um, he was like, she does have a few things working in her favor. One, she's a female and two, she's an African-American female, which I didn't know that they have the highest chance of all preemies of making it. Um, and that they were going to try to keep me pregnant as long as they could, because that would help the baby, but that they would deliver at any time that my life or the baby's life was in danger. Um, they also told me I wouldn't be able to deliver her, have a normal birth, um, because of everything that was going on, that she wouldn't survive normal childbirth. So I would have to do a C-section. Um, and I appreciated his his honesty, really. It was, um, I needed it. I didn't need, I didn't want to try to read between the lines or try to figure out what they were saying. Um, then... They, I mean, I was being poked and prodded all the time, all day. And I asked one of the nurses, what is it that you're looking for? Because, um, of course, they're monitoring the baby as well. And she's like, well, we're looking for signs of distress on the baby. Or she's like, what is called help syndrome? And I asked her, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that is, you know, <laughs> like you're, you're talking to the lady here who uh, my only surgery has been my wisdom teeth like that. That's it. I haven't had anything else. I've never been hospitalized for anything. I've never spent the night in the hospital. Like I've been like perfect health, like just wisdom teeth, you know? And, um, she lets me know that, um, Basically, it's a breakdown of your red blood cells, um, a low platelet count, and it affects, like, your liver function. It can affect your organs. I was like, okay. And um, she was like, but everything is showing up fine right now. And at that point, my parents had come down. Um, my father had gotten off work, picked up my mom, and drove straight from West Virginia to Dallas. I could tell even when I saw them, like, they were scared. And, I mean, you can just tell by the look in their eyes. They don't, they can't fix it. Like, they can't fix me. You know, I'm their baby, and I'm worried about my baby. She comes in, and she's like, we're going to have to rush you down to labor and delivery. I was like, what? She's like, no. She goes, yes. So then I start crying because I am absolutely terrified at this point. Because I only lasted five days from the time I got hospitalized to the time I had my C-section. It was only five days. I'm like, well, can I take a shower? And she's like, Miss Hughes. I was like, look, ma'am, I have had to take a whole bath the last five days I've been in here. I've been hooked up to a catheter. Y'all won't let me get up. You won't let me do anything. And now you're telling me that I have to go down here to surgery so you guys can deliver my child because something's wrong. And she goes, well, you've developed help and your organs are shutting down. 
okay, can I take a shower? Two minutes, please. It's like, if, if I, I won't go, like, I want to be clean. Like, can, can you, can I just take a shower? And I'm crying. And she's like, two minutes. I'm going to be at the door. I was like, and she, she honestly, not at the door, like the bathroom, but like the door to my room. She stood there the whole time I took a shower and I got out and she's like, do you feel better? I was like, yeah, a little bit. And so I call my parents and I call um, his mom and call him and, you know, let them know that they were taking me down and I'm in there and they were like, you know, who would you like in the room? And I'm like, my dad, um, I'm a daddy's girl. And then they come back and they're like, okay, we can't have anybody in the room now. And I'm like, why? And like, well, due to the health syndrome, you could possibly bleed out if we gave you an epidural. So we're going to have to put you all the way under so nobody can be in there. And when the doctor was like, you know, I need you to sign these forms. And if you would like us to resuscitate you and life just like flashed, like kind of like, is this really happening to me right now? And if I would allow them to do a blood transfusion, if they needed to do one. And then when he asked me, do you have your affairs in order? I was just like, you have got to be kidding. Honestly thinking that I wasn't going to wake up. And at the time, I, you know, just like, my God, if he's going to take us, just take both of us, please. Like, I don't want my child to live without her mom. I don't want to live without my child, which is probably very selfish at the same time, too, now that I think about it. And I went in and woke up <laughs> in, in a room because I'm allergic to acetaminophen. So there's not much pain medicine that they could give me anyway. So I had like a little morphine drip and it's not like they could give me anything else. So I, I didn't get to see her um, until a day after I had had her the next day. You know, I'm thinking like I'm, I'm only 28, you know, not to be 29. Like how, how is this happening to me right now? You know, like I, we think we have so much time. Um, like we take advantage of the time we have as if we have more of it because of our age. When in reality, you honestly just don't know. And to be like thrown into that suddenly, it the scariest I've ever been through. But man, I'll tell you, nothing could have prepared me to see my daughter the way she was. Yeah, what was that like when you finally got to see her? And overwhelming feeling of love and happiness and sadness. I was scared out of my mind. I mean, she was only a pound and four ounces, 12 inches long. I mean, she was small. I cried for 
the whole time she was in there, you know, either before I got there, I'd have, you know, car and spell in the car. After I left, I'd sit in the car in the hospital parking lot and I would cry for a while um, and pray and, you know, just ask for strength because I'm like, I can't, I can't do this by myself, you know, and I knew for certain that I was never going to let her go through this by herself either. It was um, one of the saddest things, honestly, to see in the NICU. I mean, I know there are parents who can't due to job obligations and, you know, they choppered patients in all the time and so their families live far away but for people who live there and I mean they're they just as the nurses would tell me I was the exception to the rule of parents because every day for five months I was there from seven in the morning until eight at night I was at the hospital in her room it's like a pod you have a chair they have like pumping stuff for you and um touch time is every three hours and um but it's like I've and then I felt like my parents looking at me is the same way I felt looking at my child like I can't fix you I can't make it go away I can't make it better but I can be here with you the whole time Courtney was very fortunate that her job at Dell never made her choose between her life as a mom and her life as a career woman. She was able to work from her laptop and join in on conference calls, all while she was next to her daughter's bedside, being able to talk to doctors, talk to nurses, and stay up to date with her daughter's care. I felt like a student again because I didn't know anything about it. So it was putting myself in that position to understand exactly what's going on with her and what does this mean and and what does that mean and um, what is the process going forward how do we correct this if it can be corrected or is it a wait and see type of game and um, I bought books all kinds of books I read when I got home and I would read on the weekends to understand because it's like I can't for me, I felt like I couldn't advocate, be a be a big advocate for my child if I did not understand what was going on with her. I couldn't make the best decisions for her if I did not know what X was. And the only way I knew how to do that was to, like, dive in and to try to understand. I've had a lot of parents say that they feel like they go to medical school when their child is in the hospital because they just learn as much as possible or constantly studying exactly what you said, just wanting to know every little thing so they can make good decisions. Yes. You feel like you're a mom, you're a doctor, you're a therapist, you're a nurse. I mean, you feel like you're everything. Courtney's hospital let her choose a primary nurse if she happened to come across a person that she really connected with. Staying true to herself, Courtney did not choose the nurse who went the easiest on her. When listening to this next story, it's important that you know that some mothers of NICU babies need to take medication to keep up a milk supply and also keep a rigorous pumping schedule. I come in one morning and I had skipped 
a pumping session. She goes, Mom Hughes? And I was like, yes. She's like, you're missing one. And I was like, I know. I was like, I just needed a little bit of sleep. Like, there's just so much going on. And she goes, oh, so if your baby was home, you're going to miss her feeding because you have so much going on. And in my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, I like her. You know, I'm I'm very direct, straightforward type of person. And all of my friends are that way, too. Like, my really close friends are that way. And we hold each other accountable. And here this woman was holding me accountable because I skipped the pumping session because I was tired. I was just like, kind of like smacked my lips and was like, whatever. And sat down and then, you know, uh, touch time. Um, because their central nervous system isn't fully developed, you can't touch them and rub them like you do normal babies. And so, because it overstimulates them and it hurts because their central nervous system isn't developed. So that's why they do it like every three hours minimize touching and rubbing and um we were doing her touch time and she was like do you have the diaper I was like yes and so we did the diaper and she was like would you like to take the temperature instead of me taking it I was like yeah I would love to do it you know can you watch and make sure and guide me so that I'm doing it right and so we did that And I told her what it was, and she wrote it down. And she was like, well, if you feel comfortable, you can do the touch time, changing her diaper, let me know if it's wet, dry, or bowel movement, and during her temperature, and just let me know the numbers, and I'll write it down. And I just asked her, like, I started asking her questions about McKenzie and, you know, what are things that they're looking out for, when they do certain tests and she was very patient with me and really explained things to me. And she honestly didn't mind my 50 million questions that I had every day, all the time. And I asked her like, would you be our primary nurse? And she was like, I would love to. And she is like one of my best friends now. Next, Courtney walks us through the emotional toll that having a child in the NICU can really take on someone. The NICU is a lifesaver, but God, it is a horrible place. You see these innocent children in such horrible conditions, it just breaks your heart. And there's nothing any of us can do. I mean, it is like you're a, a spectator and what's going on with your kid. I mean, you don't know. I mean, there were plenty of times where, you know, Mackenzie would be doing better for a few days and then she'd take a dip down for a few days. I mean, the constant roller coaster of of up and down. I mean, what that does to your emotions. Um, I remember specifically one time, um, as a matter of fact, it was a few days after I'd had her, I I was still in the hospital because, unfortunately, my preeclampsia didn't go away with delivery, and so they were trying to find the right mix of medicine to control my blood pressure to send me home safely 
Um, they were worried about me having, you know, seizures or a stroke or an aneurysm, which can happen. And so I was in the hospital for another two weeks after I had her. I didn't even get to go home right away. And my dad wrote me down one day, got pumped, and I was like, I want to spend some time downstairs with the baby, because I was on the sixth floor, and she was on the fourth, and we come in, and the lady at the front, her name is Miss Barbara, you, know, you, have to, you have to scrub in from, like, the elbow down, and um, I'd seen this white flower on the door, and I didn't know. But I'm a very inquisitive person, so I ask questions. Um, and I just happened to ask her, I'm like, hey, you know, I see the white flower. Is everything okay? And she goes, <clears throat> we use a white flower to signify that, you know, a baby has passed. Man, it's like a, a punch in the gut, just, you know, to know that some family lost their baby. And I'm sure every family in there, including myself, you're praying that one day that flower isn't your kid, you know. Because of Mackenzie's lung issues and immature immune system, Courtney's doctor encouraged her to minimize visitors to just Mackenzie's mom and dad. Doing whatever I had to do to protect her and to give her the best chance of possibly making it out even if it meant me being the bad guy for other people. And that's a lesson I learned early that still carries on to this day. There are, there have been plenty of people who haven't agreed with what I've done. Um, my own mother, for example, was not very happy when I made the decision to give her her feeding tube, I mean, cold and flu season, I mean, they, the doctors are like, y'all don't need to go anywhere. And I was like, cool, we're not going anywhere. We'll go to the doctor and we'll come home. Um, but of course, I had to screen people that were coming over, like, have you been sick? Are you sniffling? Are you coughing? Like, have you been around anybody that's sick? Have you gotten your shot? And if any of those answers were like, no, I haven't gotten my shot, or yes, I've been sick. I'm like, we gonna have to holler at you later. You can't come over. Um, but that in the NICU, it, it taught me early that not everybody is going to agree. But at the end of the day, I'm her mom, and I know her better than anybody else. You know, the doctors ask me now and have been, what do you think? You're doing, you, you know her. What, how do you feel? What are you thinking? We are all a team and we are on team McKinsey. And we all have to work together to get her to where she needs to be. Before being discharged home, the hospital implements a stay-in, where the parent or parents are required to live in the hospital day and night for up to four to five days. They have to perform all the tasks that will need it to be done at home, and all of this is being observed by a nurse. You know, sometimes you think, oh, oh we're going to go home and everything's going to be great. And it's like, no. You know, 
they feed every two to three hours. Kenzie fed every two to three. And we had breathing treatments every four hours. She came home with oxygen. She was on like 0.2 liters of oxygen that she had to be hooked up to 24 hours a day. She had a pulse ox that measured her oxygen throughout her body that she had to be hooked up to at night. And you had to do checks during the day. And then you keep all your doctor's appointments. So all of the specialists that she was seeing in the NICU, well, now she sees outside of the NICU. And I swear for like the first year, man, we were at the doctor's office like three to four times a week, every single week. Nothing can prepare you for that. You know, you so wish and long to have this normal, quote unquote, normal at home experience with your child. And sometimes you kind of feel like that you and your child have been robbed of those things because life happens. You think about it. So you have a feeding every two to three hours and you have a breathing treatment every four so every second feeding, you have a breathing treatment before that feeding. And because that breathing treatment lasts like 20, 30 minutes, and your feeding before that at 2, for example, lasts 30 minutes, that's like 2.30. So that means I have to start her breathing treatment at 3.30 in order to do her feeding at 4. That's like 45 minutes of sleep, if even that. If you can even sleep, you know, like you're on edge you know, are they breathing? Is everything okay? And God forbid they are moving and the pulse ox comes off in the middle of the night. I had so many meltdowns just crying, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And then I look at my child and it's like, I have no other choice but to do it I don't because if I don't do it where does that leave you if I don't pull it together how am I helping you in in the NICU as well we they start like feeding usually they're fed through an NG tube in their nose and because McKenzie was on the breathing machine for longer than the time they like you to be she developed an aversion in her mouth. So um, I forgot the week number that they like them to be off of it and onto like a cannula because they can sense that something is down there and it's not supposed to be down there. And for them, it's traumatic for them. You know, they, they can't swallow, you know, they can't close their mouth and you have this, they're suctioning fluid, like phlegm, basically fluid and stuff all the time. And it's not pleasant for them. And so when it came time to try to work on like feeding, she had a really, really hard time because she didn't like anything in her mouth. And she ate better for me than she did the nurses. So they're like, can you make sure you're here for feeding time? And, you know, we worked so hard on it, too. And we got home, 
and after four days, every like she was eating like a champ, and I was happy about that, stressful about the other stuff. And then I started to see the signs of repression, started to see the things I saw in the NICU with her eating, and I knew we were going nowhere good. I was like, I'm going to call your doctor. She gave, you know, us some medicine. Um, she had GERD really, really bad. Oh, my God. Like, after every feeding, too. I mean, that's like eight times a day. And, I mean, feed her slower, you know. Um, also had to thicken her milk. And so, at this point, she was on nectar. Anything thinner than, like, the consistency of nectar um, she would aspirate into her lungs. And you have people that are just like, oh, just feed the baby. She'll eat. And you just want to punch them in the face because it's like, it's not that simple. Like, for you, it was that simple. But for my child, it's not that, it's not that easy. And the oral aversion and the GERD were so bad I would have to dream feeder and then it got to a point where that wouldn't work anymore either so she went from taking like 16 to 18 ounces a day to taking four to six and she was as happy as she wanted to be when she wasn't having to eat and it's like you haven't ate anything today like how are you okay you know and so the GI doctor you know, prescribed some medicine, and that didn't help, and we did an endoscopy, a scope, a first throat, and stomach, and small intestines, and everything looked fine, and so we did an NG tube down her nose, and I was just like, I can't do this, here, like, there it was again, I can't do this, I was like, what if she pulls it out? I don't know how to put it back in. Like, you know, I'm such a horrible mom. I don't even know how to put it back in. You know, um, this is like necessary for my kid. And um, one day she actually pulled it out and I started freaking out and I called Stephanie. And I was like, hey. And she goes, what's wrong? I was like, are you working today? <laughs> no. And she lived in Plano and I was in in Irving and that was maybe like a 30, 30, 35 minute drive and I told her, I was like, Kenzie pulled out her NG2 and I don't know how to put it back in, like she goes, not a problem, I'm on my way and she drove 35 minutes for something that she did in like five seconds, but she taught me how to do it and brought me a stethoscope so that I could listen for when I had to do a pull to make sure that it was in the right place because you can, you know, it goes up through your nose and down the back of your throat and into your stomach. But if it's not done correctly, when you're pumping milk into them, if it's not in the right place, then it's going into their lungs. And Mackenzie was so active, man. She would hook that thing with her finger and pull it right out. Sometimes during a feeding, she would pull it out. I mean, this child was 
always pulling that tube out. And like, that was her, her way of telling me like, mom, I need more time. As a parent, it's hard. Like, you know, I'm fighting to give her the time to, we'll we'll get it together. We're going to work on it. We're going to work on your feeding and you and me, we're going to get it together. We're going to get this thing rolling and, you know, we'll have some bumps, but we'll eventually get there and we won't need the nose tube anymore. But she was telling me, like, I'm not ready. I need more time. And, you know, ultimately made the decision to get her a feeding tube, which wasn't easy. You kind of feel like you're giving up on your kid, but at the same time, you're you're giving them what they need. What a complicated feeling to to have, like, I feel like a failure, but I know I'm helping her, if that makes any sense. It really doesn't, you know, because the, the um, feeding with your kid is, is natural. You know, your child taking a bottle, I mean, those are just natural things, and you might stumble a little bit with breastfeeding or, you know, trying to transition from nipple to breast, breast to nipple, whatever. But just the, the feeding is just natural, How, whichever way you do it and stick to it. Now, the transitioning part, that, that's a whole other thing. But whichever way you decide to go, I mean, once you get the hang of it, I mean, you're, you're golden. And it just wasn't like that for her or myself. And you feel like a failure as a mom. I did for a little bit because it's like, I can't even feed my kid. Like, you know, to plug her up to a pump that pumps milk in her stomach. And and it's like, it was like charging your phone. It was the most disgusting feeling for the longest time for me to have like a machine, like pumping food into her belly because, you know, it took some time. Um, she still has her tube. But now, looking at it, it, it helped us. Because she needed the time. And she still needs the time. I hate it. I'm looking forward to the day that there's no more tube feeding. And, I mean, you have equipment coming every month and milk coming every month and I look forward to the day that, you know, we need, we don't need it. And she eats like a normal kid, you know, we've worked really, really hard at it. And I, um, with the help of her feeding therapist, um, her name is Jenny McLaughlin and she's like the absolute best, you know, we've been able to make major progress, but then, you know, it, it opens up your eyes to a lot of other different things because, you know, you come to the realization of working for me that, okay, you know, not only do we have lung issues from being born early, we have feeding issues because of the tube, but that's the root cause of other things. And she has um, sensory um, issues in her mouth. So, I mean, I knew she was a versus. But when you kind of learn to put a term to those and what those are and how it affects the eating, you begin to understand more 
of what your child is going through. And um, so it's still hard, but it's a lot, it makes it easier to manage and easier to be understanding because you understand. And it's not just, well, we just messed up. You know, maybe I did something wrong, you know. I think we've talked about some of the hardest parts about this, and you kind of talked about communicating with family and just having everybody kind of understand where you're coming from. Now that she's two, has that changed at all, or what is it like kind of integrating the things that she needs with your everyday life? It it took a while because I guess it, for me it was not – how can I fit her into my life? But how can I fit my life into hers? I mean, because how I was raised, you know, um, when you have kids, like your your life is not yours anymore. And so it was not about modifying her life to fit me so I'm good. It was about modifying my life so that she's always comfortable, even if that meant having cabin fever during cold and flu season because we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't go anywhere, but to doctor's office, therapy and home, you know, I had some friends, they would go to grocery stores, like, Hey, we're going to a grocery store. Like, okay, can you pick up such and such? I consider them my family. Um, one of my coworkers, his name is Chip and, um, his wife, Miss Diane, they, they're like, they're, they're in my family. They were the easiest because during the time of the NICU, they, every Sunday for lunch after church, they would come by the hospital, pick me up, take me to go eat for lunch, and then drop me back off. And they would always bring like a basket of goodies. Like she was always baking brownies and baking cookies, or she'd bring me like a basket full of snacks or, um, a, a devotional for me to read and you know they were an absolute godsend for me and when we came home um miss diane would come over every week and she would spend all day with us there were some people though that it was harder for them to kind of to understand the fact that i know you this may have been how you were used to doing it with kids before, your own kids, your own other grandkids, your cousins, whatever. But things are different for Mackenzie, and things have to be done this way for her. And so it was a, it was a struggle for some to realize that things have to be done differently. You know, like, things are not okay. So, you know, I mean, now, I mean, we go to the grocery store, I'm probably about like any typical parent with a toddler at the grocery store. You don't want to do it. Um, so I will curbside in a heartbeat. But I mean, there's still modifications that have to be made. I mean, she's tube fed three times a day, you know, now, um, after breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, the daycare. I mean, moving here from... Dallas, I had the hardest time finding childcare because nobody would take her with her tube. I'm sure it's just a liability, you know. 
I'm just like, oh my God, you know, am I about to lose my job? I was laid off and for a month was in like complete turmoil because I have a solely medically dependent child and I don't have a job right now. So then when I got the job I have, and then I was having a hard time with daycare, I was like, man, am I about to lose my job? Like, I can't lose my job. But they were, they were so great. It's like, look, if you're not able to, you can just come down, you know, every two to three weeks for a few days. We can do that. We can work with you. But then I'm thinking in the back of my head, too, like, well, who am I going to leave her with for two to three days? You know, because it's been just me. So then the place that we're at, um, they were hesitant. I had to fill out, you know, a questionnaire. Her doctors had to fill out a questionnaire. And then they um, accepted her on the sole condition that they did not touch her tube. So I have to leave work every day to go do a tube feeding. If she has medication, in any time in between that time, I have to leave work to go administer the medicine. I have to leave work if she has to have breathing treatments, if she, her allergies are acting up or whatever. I'm constantly like, I'm, I'm having to leave to, to go do something. And again, I'm very blessed and fortunate that, you know, nobody's hounding me about having to go give my kid medicine or go give her tube feeding during work hours. But it's been a constant, you know, um, rearranging of my life to make sure that she doesn't feel a hiccup or a bump or anything. And I, I think that's how it should be. You know, you're honestly, she shouldn't have to suffer because I'm uncomfortable. She shouldn't have to do without because I'm uncomfortable. And all oh, I got to sacrifice this and all oh, I have to give up that, you know, I mean, I would honestly give up everything I have for everything just to be normal. What helps you cope with everything that you have going on? Um, prayer. Um, just my experience with her definitely shook me to the core of, of who I am. It did. I me and God had a lot of conversations. I, I wasn't happy. Like I was, I was upset with him. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, you know, my my mom is a minister. My grandfather was an elder. I mean, I, my aunts and uncles were preachers. One uncle is an apostle. I mean, I grew up in a in a family that knew God and we know how to pray. And I was mad at him. Like, why? Like, why? Why, why me? Why her? Like, I, I treat everybody right. Why? Like, why, why do I have to be the one to consider it? You know, why can't things just be, you know, unicorns and rainbows over here, man? I don't, I mean, my, my face, praying, I did. I, I did have to go see a therapist. I actually haven't talked openly about that. I don't mind sharing. In the African American community, <laughs> I'm laughing because it sounds so bad. You tell them something's wrong, man. Like you better go talk to Jesus, take it to the Lord. And you're just like, you know what? I mean, look, God gave us doctors 
for a reason. He also gave us therapists for a reason too. You know, yeah. Man, my, my mom when uh coming up on her first birthday and she was off of her oxygen, so you know, no pulse ox, no oxygen machine. And I started hearing like beeps all the time. Like hospital beeps. That's man, the sound that damn thing like I still have bad dreams about and I can hear it. It's um I would hear it when I was asleep. I would hear it when I was awake. And I was talking to my friend Ebony about it. And the first thing she said to me was, you have got to call your employee assistance program tomorrow and find a therapist. She's like, I've been telling you I think you're depressed and you keep saying no. You think it's the baby blues and I keep telling you no. And she was like, in this? And she was like, no, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. You, you have to go find one. And so the uh, therapist from the NICU, I'd asked her, and she referred me to a lady. And come on out, I was suffering from postpartum depression and PTSD. Therapy helped a lot, a whole lot, a whole lot. Um, I had had difficult conversations with um, friends who I'm not as close with anymore, kind of feeling like abandoned in a sense, like you kind of just disappeared in like my worst time. Um, talks with family members about, and and that's the thing, they all mean well um, about being dismissive of what's going on. I got a lot of, um, oh, it'll be okay. Oh, everything will be all right not like actually listening to me like you're just you're dismissing everything I'm telling you to be like I want to be okay like I'm not asking you if it's going to be okay like I just need you to be there for me and to listen to me because at the end of the day nobody else is going through it but me anyway like you're you're on the outside looking in and I'm, I need somebody to talk to I don't need you to tell me it's going to be okay I don't need you to encourage me I guess maybe for me, you kind of got to a point where it's like, I know I'm, I'm going to be stuck in this thing for a while. Like, I, we are going to be in the thick of this thing for a cool minute. And I just need somebody to talk to. I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know a timetable of when she's going to come off, when this is going to go away, when I don't have to do this anymore. But what I do know is that I'm going to be in it for a while. And I just need you just to listen. Well, that's amazing that your friend Ebony helps you get there and that your therapist could take you from there and figure that out. Going through it wasn't, wasn't fun. I mean, no, working through the emotions and feelings and a lot of anger at different people. It wasn't easy. Um, And so one thing she did encourage me to do was to have conversations. And then once we got further along in therapy, like to start writing again. And so I relaunched my blog, funnyd.com. And I'm not as consistent as I should be because clearly life gets in the way. But um, I talk about different things with us, like feeding and you know, different struggles and stuff that I have. 
sometimes I feel like it's easier to do it in writing than it is to, to talk about. Um, cause I can cry and type, you know, and, 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 and there's nobody there. Nobody can hear me. Nobody can see me and the tears can just flow. And sometimes, I mean, you are kind of scared of people judging you for, for where you are. Um, or maybe the emotional state that you're in or, or the mental space that you're in um, going through this when in reality, they just don't understand. So they don't know any better, you know, because it's easy to say, well, I would do this. And it's like, cool, trade me places for a day. I haven't built a my village here yet. I've been here two and a half months, but I had a nice small village in, in Dallas. When we go up there sometimes, I mean, we have stuff to do because I actually took on a second job to help me pay for medical bills. Um, you know, somebody in that post circle will watch her and they've been around, they spend the time, they know how to take care of her. And I don't have to, and I think it's a trusting too. I know that they will, they, they will do whatever needs to be done for her. Having that helps. At the end of our interview, Courtney eloquently expresses the selflessness, love, and drive that she practices on a daily basis. You always want to do what is best for your child, even if it's something that you don't want to do, that you would prefer not to do. I mean, if it's in the best interest of your child, then you just do it. Your feelings do not matter. That's one thing I have learned as well. My feelings about, I don't like going to therapy. I don't. We are in speech therapy twice a week. So after a tube feeding, I go back to work and then leave work to like within like an hour to pick her up, take her to therapy where she's at for an hour and then come home. So I'm like working in the front office of the therapy session, sometimes taking conference calls from my car. I'm like, I don't want to do that. But my feelings do not matter because that is what she needs. So like it or not, you, you just suck it up and you, you give your child your absolute best. Like that's my thing is to give her my best and to be there with her every single step of the way. Like she is never going to think that she is in this thing by herself because I'm in it with her. And it's just that selfless love that I mean when I look at her I, I think about that day that I was in the hospital like telling the doctor I don't care what happens to me I just need to give her the best chance to live laying your life down on the line for your kids and that's something you know with a kid with special needs in, in any way or you know, learning disabilities and speech delays. Kenzie had a speech delay. Found out today about apraxia with her. I mean, it's a constant laying down your life on the daily. And um, I just hope one day when she gets older, she realizes everything that mom had to do. She's very thankful. 
I am so incredibly grateful to you, Courtney, for sharing your story and being so vulnerable and expressing your words and your feelings. There is no doubt that you are so strong and Mackenzie is lucky to have you as her mama. Courtney says that having open communication with the physicians, nurses, and other parents in the NICU helped her in her journey. She also recommends two books, Preemies, The Essential Guide for Parents of Premature Babies. She says to only read the parts that apply to your child because it can feel overwhelming and scary at times. Courtney also says that if your child has feeding issues, she recommends The Guide to Extreme Picky Eating by Jenny McLaughlin. I will link to both of these books on the show notes page. If you'd like to connect with Courtney, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter as SunnyD.com, spelled out, or on Facebook as SunnyD. You can also follow her blog, SunnyD.com. You'll want to make sure you're following along because Courtney also has a side business called Kenzie Class, which has accessories for special needs children. I'd like to thank Laura Morrisman Photography for the breathtaking pictures of Courtney and McKenzie. I think both of us cried when we saw them for the first time. Laura, you are an amazing person and you are so talented. Laura travels across the country, so go to her website, lauramorrismanphotography.com, and book her now. Thank you all for joining Courtney and I today, and I hope she leaves you feeling inspired like she's done for me. Make sure you're following along with Child Life on Call on social media so you can stay up to date with what's happening and connect with our parents who share their stories. Have a great week, and I'll be back with you next Monday.